Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this episode of Educational Alpha, Bill welcomes Zoe Cruz, a pioneer in the financial world. Zoe shares her invaluable experiences from Morgan Stanley to the establishment of her venture, Manai, shedding light on the digital asset revolution, the importance of regulatory frameworks, and the evolving nature of finance. The discussion explores the potential and pitfalls of digital currencies, the impact of technology on traditional finance, and the profound implications for future generations in global markets. Zoe's insights illuminate the path of innovation, inviting you to consider the vast possibilities that lie ahead in the world of finance and digital assets. Listen in. Zoe Cruz, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you very much, Bill. You've got a great story to tell at a very interesting time. I think you and I are probably about the same age. My post-collegiate career spans over 40 years, and you probably are in that same territory. And I think we are, for good, better, and different reasons, products of where we once came from. And maybe we can start with a little bit of your background and, and some of the opportunities you saw in career one, if it's fair to put it that way, and what that maybe meant to career two, and then I want to move on to Manai. I would say the fortunate position I have been in to actually be joining Morgan Stanley, one of the better investment banks right out of business school, is by and large luck. And within that, the timing that I joined, ironically, was made an offer by three interview with three investment banks, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, and Solomon Brothers. So for a different conversation, cultures matter. I'm glad I joined Morgan Stanley in terms of culture fit. But at that time, the offer came from uh, to be in corporate finance, to be an investment banker. I was already a working mother. A few months of that cured me of that disease, being an investment banker. And again, I was lucky. And luck I would say you talk to anyone who is modest enough to recognize luck. Yes, smart enough and yes, hardworking. Those are table stakes. A lot of people are smart and a lot of people work very hard. But I joined Morgan Stanley when it was a private investment banking boutique, 1,800 people, three offices, Tokyo, London, New York. When I left in 07, it was 60,000 people and it had offices everywhere. The revolution, I was lucky to participate in at the bottom rank of the ladder, was finance globalizing. And at that time, they actually were setting up a brand new business that has relevance to our discussion today, the foreign exchange business. Before that, 
Citigroup, I mean, commercial banks did FX, investment banks did not do that. Post Glass-Steagall, if you remember the Glass-Steagall Act that we got rid of. So I joined a firm with a unique perspective over four decades, as you say, roughly speaking, give or take a few years, of actually the world globalizing. Globalization, not fragmentation, which was prior to that was the world we lived in, gave me that perspective of going to China and actually having a joint venture with the Chinese on teaching them how to do FX business. So fast forward to today, obviously that world that I was very privileged to participate in is going in reverse. So how I got to basically, by luck, get involved in the digital asset revolution. And for me, this revolution, Bill, as you can see from the passion in my voice, it's as big, if not bigger, than finance globalizing. It's as big as that. And it's not the revolution of the Bitcoin maximalist, which is buy Bitcoin and you'll be rich. Maybe, or you could lose a lot of money. Or the other nonsense, which is 75 to 85-year-old men, mainly men saying this is all a bunch of crap, if I'm allowed to use that word. Neither one of them describes the revolution. And for me, you never went wrong investing in high-growth businesses that revolutionize business models, all kinds of business models, through technology. You never went wrong. And that is what this is, the digital asset space. So Headhunter called me after I got off a bunch of traditional boards, like all mutual PLC and Man Group, et cetera. And I was on the board of Morgan Stanley as well when I was an executive member of the board. To say Ripple, this is basically four years ago, wanted a board member with my experience. And I said, you know what? I don't believe in that. I think blockchain is interesting, but all this cryptocurrency, I have zero interest. And thank God the headhunter said, you know what? Just fly to California and listen to the story. And thank God I did that. And the story, and then I'll let you basically take this discussion wherever you want to take it. The story that I heard, and I joined that board, and then four years later, I was setting up my own business in this industry, was the fact that you and I can exchange value, not just money, value. If I am a journalist, a painter, I'm a content provider, and you're a content buyer, whatever the content is, with just a phone and not a bank account, that's a big revolution. And what I say to people when they say this is full of uh, ignorant and arrogant people, which is true, and a lot of shysters, which is also true, but there is a lot of us, me included in the space, that understands, given my previous background, that the SWIFT system and correspondent banking system works fine even now if you're sending half a billion dollars from Morgan Stanley to Goldman Sachs. If you're an SME in Nigeria, not so good. So for me, you're talking about access to half of the world that's underbanked or unbanked, getting business models where you and I, if I'm a musician, Spotify doesn't get to keep 30% of everything I provide. That's a very exciting revolution. And with that, I'll stop pontificating about why this is great. So much to work there with Zoe and 
And you could talk a little bit about the origins of the name, but it is a bridge. Manai is literally a bridge from TradFi to DeFi. And as you said, if you and I decide to exchange an asset for cash or anything else, or barter or otherwise, why do we need several middlemen between us? And that's, I think, the basic premise of moving to DeFi. I don't know if we can rinse out, nor do we want to rinse out, perhaps some of the underlying principles and protocols that make transactions safe for end investors. And I don't think you or I would ever be espousing that. But building a bridge to greater access to all assets, I think it'd be very interesting. And maybe you can comment on that, but maybe to serve it up a little bit too, that when I think about digital assets, at least from my semi-informed opinion, the proxy is Bitcoin then maybe the business model is SBF. And I think you either hear or pass use about, do have a lot of fraudsters and shysters in this space. And I think whenever you have innovation, maybe they are going to be at the doorstep. We've got to get them out of the way and then take a step back and say, what is the value proposition? And and I'm not an anti-Bitcoin person by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a lot easier for me to understand taking a non-tradable asset in the private markets, creating some kind of a token equivalent and being able to trade that freely on a blockchain technology. And for good, bad, or in different reasons, that might be a very simplistic description of Manai the bridge, but I'll let you uh, run with all of that. Yes, Manai is a bridge. My daughter actually helped me choose that because all the Greek names were taken. I'm Greek. I was born and raised in Greece. So all the great Greek names were taken. But also, Menai, I love beautiful architecture. Menai is a suspension bridge in Wales that actually spans very treacherous waters. It was built in the 1830s, 1860s, a marvel of human ingenuity that basically bridges two areas. And for me, bridging traditional finance with this new world was a very up name, plus it's a beautiful bridge. That's how we got the name Manai. The traditional finance where I feel, although my story of Manai basically is unique, I would say, in this industry. And when I started the business and I would say regulators are right to want frameworks, move fast and break shit, as they say in Silicon Valley, doesn't work in finance. It's good if you're going to create a new phone. And so for me, that overarching philosophy that I still have, the reason this industry will continue to grow and achieve escape velocity is regulators around the world, frankly, a lot more progressively than the U.S., but the U.S., there is a subset of people that are believers in what I'm about to say. There is a framework out there where they say, Broadly speaking, Bitcoin to Bitcoin, knock your socks off. The fiat on and off ramps, wherever you are, we're going to regulate you the way we regulate Citigroup. And if you get that concept, that the fiat on and off ramps, for example, if you're an exchange, Binance a little late, but they're getting the point, you're going to need the centralized entities like exchanges. You need them. I think Coinbase is a very well-run exchange. Ironically, FTX, Sam, for whatever his other host of real big problems, he built a good exchange. My prediction is people that have a lot of money and know how to run businesses will buy FTX and create another centralized exchange. 
And so this centralized and decentralized finance, the concepts that are best in class for both is what will enable this industry to achieve escape velocity. We're on our way. Let's not obviously underplay FTX. And there's been a lot of fraud, a lot of fraud. But sadly, uh, when there is a lot of money, usually in finance, as I say to people, the largest fraud in my financial history was from a regulated public company called Enron. Second largest fraud, also public regulated company, WorldCom, made off. None of these had anything to do with crypto. Celsius, another one where a lot of pension funds and legitimate players lost a lot of money, had nothing to do with crypto and fraud in crypto. He borrowed short and lent long. It's called finance balance sheet management 101. So if we acknowledge fraud exists, you need to first understand the space, understand the riskiness of it. And you've alluded some of it. To me, the biggest risk isn't the shysters, which, of course, there are plenty of them. It is actually the lack of robust infrastructure that still exists. So if you're a retail guy and you want to buy Bitcoin and sell this or that with your wallet, chances are you can have your Bitcoin stolen a lot more easily than my CIO, where we have cold storage or hot storage, if not nanoseconds, it's a few hours. And we're dealing with Coinbase, not some godforsaken entity in the middle of nowhere. So for me, it is the biggest risk is counterparty credit risk in this industry. And so you need to have people that understand what are the risks you're taking. And as you know, my career was taking risk. I am a very big believer. You don't make any money if you don't take risk, but you must be paid for it. The riskier the investment the smaller of a percentage you should allocate to it, to state the obvious, but much more importantly, you need to get paid for it. And this is what brings me to now, I would say, Bill, the best risk reward in terms of asymmetry of risk is the digital asset space, which is, yes, it's still risky. And that's why, as I say to people, zero allocation to this space is the wrong answer. More than 2 to 5% of your liquid net worth is also the wrong answer because it is risky. But then you can make 100x. This is in a context where last year is the first year in my lifetime, well, my financial lifetime, where stocks and bonds, you lost money on both sides of that equation. That's a first. So you talk about a symmetry of risk reward. The new, new theme, as you know, is private credit. I look at the opaqueness of it. I look at how much or how little you're getting paid for it. I'm sure it's a great big theme. You're not getting paid enough for the risks you're taking. So that's the way I look at this. It's not riskless. As long as you don't have permanent loss, permanent loss you don't come back from, we're very proud to say that the infrastructure we put in place at Manai, we had zero Luna, zero Terra, uh, because My CIO writes 60-page papers for every token we put in a portfolio, real research. And when we looked at Luna, even though it was the top 10 in market cap, we said no to it because he very quickly realized 
if you enter into a vortex of the way it was structured, you go to zero in weeks, which is what happened. Zero FTX. So permanent loss, you don't come back from. Mark to market loss, you do. I think that an overarching theme here is always embracing innovation and disruption. And I think that our world is in better place with Airbnb and Netflix and Uber because they disrupted state industries. And I think what we have happening here is the disruption of TradFi. But when you have a consumer like you or I or anybody committing capital to this business model, which is highly regulated, it brings on a whole new set of risks. But I think you underscored table stakes for investing is taking risk. And you want to make sure you're being appropriately compensated for that risk. And I think your point about having at least a small position, I think an offset to that is if you don't, you could effectively have a short position inside of your portfolio. That's brilliant, Bill, because it gives me an opportunity to say the following, that actually, and we've had discussions with institutional clients for a long time, all of our investors at the moment are multi-billionaire family offices where they get what I've just said and they don't have investment committees to worry about. But we're getting calls along the lines of what you just said, increasingly reverse inquiries, because obviously I don't want to be falsely modest. I don't know of anyone in this space that ran multi-billion dollar businesses globally and ran regulated businesses. So I understand that world. And what's interesting is what they're starting the conversation. You can see swung from, I'm going to get fired if I do this, to actually, if I don't do this and you're right, I am short this thing. So that's exactly right, Bill. Those conversations are beginning. They're picking up their pencils. They haven't written any checks yet. I'm talking about broadly the institutional space. But I think that's a matter of time. And I'll give you the statistic that shocked even me. Our research group did a lot of work on the space. First of all, the Menai Index that we created, the framework of which the CIO is basically deciding what tokens he's going to put in and what tokens he's not going to put in by diversification of use cases. That index is a correlation is oscillating slightly above zero. Meanwhile, we looked at the 90-day correlations to the S&P 500 of every major asset class, high yield, emerging markets, real estate, commodities. The thing that shocked us is treasuries, the old riskless asset class, two things shocked us. The 10-year average correlation of treasuries to your portfolio was negative, negative 0.4, the numbers here say. It is now positive 0.25. Think about that. And if you invested in the long end of U.S. treasuries in the last three years, you lost 40% of your money. I mean, let that sink in. In terms of the riskless part of your portfolio, that's what happened to you. You made 3.5%, 4% coupon, or you lost almost half of your money. So it's in that context that this asset class, given its uncorrelated returns, and the asymmetry of risk where, and again, I'll give you some numbers that we've done. This is as of October, so November is even better. The last three years, if you invested in Bitcoin, because that's in the proxy, you made 151%, and that's as of end of October. NASDAQ, 21%. S&P, 34%. 
Gold, which shocked me, minus 3%. Real estate index, plus 7%. And long-term U.S. treasuries, minus 42%. And so the 10 years is even, I mean, Bitcoin is up 21,000%. And with that, what I will say to you, Bitcoin, it sucks the air out of the room. I think it's an interesting use case. Stan Druckermiller and I were macro people. I never used to own gold in my family office. I mean, why if it doesn't give you any returns? I believe 2% inflation we're never going to see again. That's what I believe. So I started buying gold two years ago. To my shock, so if you're my generation, you buy gold if you think inflation is going to go up. My 25-year-old buys Bitcoin. It's a use case. It's not the only use case. And in fact, it's the least interesting use case. Bitcoin actually has done a lot better than gold, as I just told you. So bet with the young, the new generation. But it's only a use case that's the least interesting one. The reason it's becoming interesting, I believe we're witnessing Weimar Republic type of fiat currencies being debased. That's why it's so interesting. But brilliant minds actually are writing code on Ethereum and other protocols. And they say, you know, yeah, I own some Bitcoin, but there's nothing I can do with it. They're writing code on other protocols that will change the world. And that's what I'm excited about. 30% of our portfolio is Bitcoin, but the 70% that's not Bitcoin is where the real use case revolution is happening. There's an old saying, Zoe, that you've heard about history rhyming or repeating. And I think that's largely true. But uh, Howard Marks, in one of his recent memos, reminded his readers that for the vast majority of people working today, so we're talking now from 1980 to 2020, that 40-year period, either interest rates were historically lower at zero or in a rapid descent. And the opportunity there was enormous. And now we have uh, Fed trying to manage inflation, trying to manage employment, demographics have shifted. What's driving interest rates might be the enormous debt and deficits we're lugging around and your old job, FX and currency around the world. So I don't know if it's going to rhyme the same way. And I think we've got to embrace this innovation, not so much for speculation for an early win from holding something in a short period of time, but this whole trend marries up very nicely to something we've talked about in this platform many, many times, which is democratization. And and if I want to have access to private equity, another correlation is probably 0.9 to public equity. So unless I have some kind of an edge or an opportunity, I might as well own the S&P 500. But if somebody could help do the due diligence and put that private equity company or that early stage VC onto a blockchain where I can get access to it, I think that could be very, very powerful. And something you said earlier, if that is the outcome, I probably need a permission blockchain because somebody's going to have to help me with price discovery. Somebody's going to have to maybe fill that role as a specialist to provide liquidity if we want to trade with each other because we may not know each other. But I think that if I marry everything we've talked about up against democratization, I think there's a very, very powerful story to be told there. Yes, absolutely. And in addition to that, just to put the numbers uh, Howard Marks is saying, when I said I joined the firm Morgan Stanley when it was a private small investment banking boutique, overnight rates were 21% and 30-year treasuries were 15% on their way to two. A monkey could do what we did. And we were not monkeys to state the obvious. 
what he says to me, the reason it's critical for us to understand how big the statistic I just mentioned is. So from my lifetime, given where I began finance, my career, uh, 4% 10-year treasuries, it's on the low end of the thing. You have an entire generation of decision makers that say it's going to go back to 2%. And what I would say, even if you don't accept my view of inflation, when you have $33 trillion worth of public debt and adding $2 trillion every 12 months to it, the yield curve can steepen, the Fed can actually ease, and that's why I think ultimately Bitcoin does deserve something in your portfolio. You shouldn't have so much what it will save you, the ignominious end of your liquid assets getting blown away by detrimental moves. Because ultimately, for me, you can have failed auctions at the long end where the U.S. government starts issuing billions with an S of auctions and the Chinese and the Japanese far from they're not selling. They just don't have to be the marginal buyer. And you can have a yield curve steepening. In that environment, you can have higher interest rates and Bitcoin still going up or this sector still going up. What I'm saying is the headwinds that we've had up until now, the Sam Bankman fried disasters, and the fact that higher interest rates, why would you invest in Bitcoin? Because it's a higher interest rate environment. I have a lot of my own money, one-year T-bills. I was able to get five and a quarter percent. Why would I invest in anything else that gives me risk? But I'm saying the macro environment is such where this industry, to address your point, the bigger point about the revolution, we're going to have tailwinds now instead of headwinds. A quick but semi-related aside to what you just said, Zoe. So if we've got a national debt here in the U.S. of 30-some-odd trillion, not an insignificant number, and, and running massive deficits. And China's already moved in this direction. But do you have a view on central bank digital currency and good thing, bad thing? Look, it's a good thing. The way the Western world is doing it, they're experimenting at the moment, some of them more than experimenting. The way the Chinese are doing it is to control the population where they will know whether you bought your coffee in Shanghai from Starbucks or the Chinese guy. That's what CBDC in China is. In the Western world, frankly, it's reinventing the way traditional rails technologically work. But as long as monetary policy is executed through commercial banks, that's much more relevant to current finance than CBDCs. JP Morgan and Citigroup is much more important than CBDCs and the Fed. So does that whole value proposition, though, does it fly in the face of what a, a digital currency was meant to represent in the first place, where if the U.S. has a central bank digital currency, they can confiscate my wealth if they decide to do that? The concept of having to file a tax return may become quaint because they can decide what I owe them. And maybe that sounds conspiratorial to some degree. But having an open network away from a central bank is really what digital currency was all about in the first place. How did the two of those get reconciled? Well, look, I think that nonsense, frankly, is I commend the young because I'm not one of those people like Charlie Munger, God rest his soul, 
at the age of 98, Charlie, I didn't, I used to say get off the stage, I guess he did. But for me, this nonsense about you invented this thing to fight the man. Yeah, but that in finance, you don't get to fight the man. And that's what actually regulators around the world are focused on. I would say the real evolution is traditional finance is going to continue to work the way it's working currently. In fact, I think the oligopolies like JP Morgan, where they're charging you as much as they want to, if they want to accept you as a client. And the nice thing about this space of giving access to finance, Bill, is JP Morgan has zero interest in covering the basket weaver in Kenya and Nigeria. So that's the beauty of that. The Nigerian government has an interest in creating new rails. So I would say this world isn't because you can avoid to pay taxes. You avoid to pay taxes with a good old dollar suitcases full of dollars. A lot of the thievery happens with the traditional fiat currencies. It's really about that, that actually, if you're an intermediary and you're gouging, you're the go-between, the user and the provider, you better worry. If you're a central bank, you're not going to worry. They have all the cards. And as I said, if you want to live in Bitcoin land forever, fine. But the moment you decide to sell your Bitcoin and to buy Singaporean yen, U.S. dollars, you're going to pay the same taxes as any other stock and bond holder. So all that is nonsense, frankly. So maybe just a little bit of probably more of a longer term outlook. So again, you and I have been around long enough where asset management, even banking to some degree, were cottage industries. There weren't a lot of dominant players. The SNL space, and maybe some of the listeners don't even know what SNL stands for, there were banks in every corner. But then mergers, acquisitions, and balance sheet commitment came in, and now we have a couple of multi-trillion dollar asset management firms. The barriers of entry have gotten more difficult. Banking consolidation, even through last year with Silicon Valley and Republic has continued to accelerate too. What is the future of digital assets? It's right now very much of a cottage industry. People buy a lot of entrepreneurs, and it's great that you're there and they're early. But do you see a consolidation? And then what are the Morgan Stanleys of the world doing? I doubt they're sitting on their hands saying, I hope Zoe's wrong and we're going to be the dominant player. Maybe there's going to be M&A there, but how do you see this all sorting itself out in the broader scheme of things? Well, the way I see it 10 years from now, because this is early on a scale of one to 10, we're maybe at three or four, but 10 years from now, there'll be, I'm going to say 10 years from now, who knows, but my vision is the way it's going to work is the current big players like JP Morgan and Citigroup will continue to play in Barclays. I mean, European, huge, you look at UBS and Credit Suisse, oligopolies. They will stop being rentiers of a system and there will be utilities, well-regulated utilities. And I think the decentralized finance world and where I see basically, I call these tokens that we invest in, of the 19,000 tokens out there, very quickly you can deduce 18,500 are a joke, BS. Of the 500, you need to do some research to get down to 150. And those 150, 
They're pointing to use different use cases as one of our tokens that we only have 50 basis points in is basically AI data token, because as you know, AI requires huge data. And if you're a guy in India and you have something to work on, you can actually borrow this on a decentralized basis. So the tokens, in my view, 10 years from now, that create a community, a network of hundreds of millions of users, and they're taking that token of micropayments, I can pay you instantaneously five cents or a dollar at a time, those tokens will be very valuable. You're going to have exchanges that will make you a price in that token because you're now successful. And so that's what's going to happen. There will be the dollar. There will be the European. Who knows where the European currencies are going to go back to dollar sterling and dollar French in Paris, dollar French franc. But I see the traditional world being powerful, but less oligopolistic. I think antitrust will be a very big thing. I said to a friend whose daughter is going to law, have her study antitrust. It's going to be a full employment opportunity. And I think the asset management community, the idea that you run $6 trillion where you're making an assumption that liquid asset classes are in fact liquid, not if you need to move $10 trillion in a space of a week. It's called long-term capital fallacy. That's how I see the world coexisting. And right now, frankly, there's a lot of nonsense, not just from my industry, the digital asset industry, but also the rentier industry, whether it's the asset managers, and I don't want to be quoted on that, maybe widely, whether it's the asset managers or the banks that are just using this technology to cut costs and to create the moats they have around the world to be much bigger moats that are close to them. Moving toward wrap-up, so I want maybe finishing on a lighter note, but an important one too. So you've had a very, very successful career, no matter if you partitioned between what you did at Morgan Stanley, what you did at these very prominent asset management firms as an independent director and now at Manai, but it has been just a remarkable career. You did mention in passing, you came over to the U.S. as a very young woman at the age of 14, the daughter of immigrants. Immigration is topic du jour. We've got very poor demographics around the world. China is maybe the case study, as is Japan, but the U.S. is getting older more and more quickly. Could a 14-year-old version of Zoe Cruz today have the same opportunity that you had when you came over with your parents back in the day? Probably not. It's possible, but we deal in probabilities in life. Probabilistically speaking, not for two major reasons. One is I was almost 15. And when you think about in hindsight, even for me, it's incredible. I didn't speak a word of English. My parents were immigrants. I was almost 15. I didn't speak a word of English. The country and we went to Boston. The country had these schools that taught immigrants like me English one-year program, where at the beginning there were Italians and Chinese. We were communicating the students with the teacher sign language practically. Three years later, I went to a public high school. Then after that, a year, I was at the top of the class. Not very hard to be at the top of that class. Three years later, I was at Harvard College on a full scholarship. And 25 years later, I was running Morgan Stanley. 
I would submit, probabilistically speaking, that's hard. But that's because, as I said, I lucked into two things. One is this country had infrastructure for immigrants, legal immigrants, by the way. My dad had to provide a letter that if he couldn't get a job, it wasn't the government that was going to feed him. It was actually the small company of Greeks that said, I'm going to employ him and I'm going to feed them. So that immigration seamless process of, at that time, it was late 60s, early 70s, this country needed blue-collar workers, so they invited us in. So it was win-win. We went for a better opportunity, and the country had young labor, but at their rules of engagement. Do you see the difference as opposed to, I just don't think... As controversial, I do believe that just because you're poor, you don't deserve to overtake any sovereign nation just because you're poor. So that's one thing that at that time, I was lucky that America wanted us. It's not that we came in and they didn't want us. And the other luck, as I said, I completely by luck got into foreign exchange and within a great firm. So the advice I give to people to have the career I had is know where the puck is going. So the mega trend isn't joining Morgan Stanley Investment Banking Group. It's a nice little job if you want just the money. But if you want to make a difference, you've got to take risk. And in fact, just to leave you with that thought, I went to Harvard Business School and my investment banking cohort, they were getting promoted to VPs. I was still toiling away in a brand new business called FX. And I used to say, what have I done to my career? So I took risk. I took risk with a nascent industry that could have gone nowhere. So that's what I would say. There is a new opportunity. And I think that opportunity is the, the digital asset space, the digital revolution. Well, I think that's a great way to conclude it. And luck and skill, I think, are highly correlated. And I think if you keep your eye not on the near-term prize, but the longer-term horizon and have a sense of where you're trying to go. Nothing in life is a straight line, but certainly you're a test case as to how that's worked out at least times two and maybe more so as your next stage of your career and hopefully mine continue to develop. But, but Zoe, you've been a great advocate, content provider. You've done a lot on the Kaya platform, so I appreciate that. You and I have met several times through SBAI, so I think you are a poster person for why we need to do things right in a transparent way, but embrace, not run away from innovation. So thanks for all of that. And it's great to see you again on this platform. Thank you for your time. And I will leave you, I promise, with this last thought. Unimpeachable integrity is a core value that you must have as an individual and as a business. People have your number. You can't pretend you have integrity. Nothing is resilient. Nothing is steady in terms of building anything if you don't have integrity. Well said and a good way to conclude. Zoe, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. 